Good morning, and I too greet you in Jesus' name and welcome you to this service this morning. Glad for the presence of every one of you. So, this morning I have entitled the uh, message, Non-Resistance and Its Relatives. And uh, you may think, well, he's really original. You know, let's talk about a doctrine that we... Uh, that we have down pat, right? We don't need a whole lot of instruction in this area of non-resistance. We know what we believe and and where we stand on that. And it's been a kind of a fundamental doctrine of our of our of our faith, the Anabaptist faith, for many years. But uh, the reason I said non-resistance and its relatives is because. The, the 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 doctrine goes much further than just the fact that we um, have collectively decided that we will not participate in a military or something like that, something along those lines. I once was told by a person that um, preachers shouldn't preach on such things as this because we don't need instruction on these kinds of things. We have... Uh, instruction books, and, and uh, uh, Maranatha offers a three-week course on, that, uh, on this particular subject, and um, that it's a real sleeper when, when somebody addresses something like this in, uh, in a Sunday morning. So if you feel that way this morning, my apologies to you. I'll, I'll try to make it uh, something that you can maybe take something away from it here this morning. I'll give you a few reasons that I think that it is it is perhaps a good idea to revisit these fundamentals occasionally anyway. One of the reasons is, is I looked back in, uh, in the records I have, and this particular topic maybe has been bumped against uh, different times here in our church, but it, is never, it hasn't been directly addressed for quite a number of years. I couldn't find the last time it would have been. So, anybody remember this topic being addressed directly uh, on, from this pulpit? I, I couldn't come up with it with anything. It, it might have been, but I couldn't come up with it. And um, I believe that a test on this particular issue, issue in a very real, real way could potentially reveal less conviction in our individual hearts than we profess collectively. Does that make sense? Like, in other words, when we're tested individually um, in a very real way, sometimes what we actually do and the things we, we um, how we relate to that issue or whatever, ends up being a little different than what we profess collectively. And I will say, and I say this to my to my shame, actually, but... As I reflect on my life, um, I would say that there is a very great chance that in that time period from 18 to 26, when a person is up for grabs by the Selective Service and could potentially be inducted or called up for, for service to the country. Now, you know, just to, just to frame that a little bit, currently we, we have what we believe is at least the favor of the of the federal government, 
and that there would at least be some exemption given or consideration of that given to people um, that profess a conviction in this area. However, the point I'm trying to make is if it would have been my lot to be tested to the to the um, to the point of some of my ancestors and the way they were tested under the uh, the World War One draft, I am not fully confident that I would I would have came out where I wish I would have came out. Does that make sense? I'm not sure. I'm I'm a little bit hesitant how that may have all turned out. And so um, I I would guess just from my reading of history and and my knowledge of um, of uh, the human race, I would guess that perhaps I'm not alone there. In other words, sometimes when we're really honest with ourselves, we we need some we need some brushing up uh, in in some of these areas that we think we have down pat. All right. Another reason I think we need to look at this occasionally is if we don't understand any doctrine or concept before we're tested in it, like if we don't understand it, we don't understand what we're even standing for, we don't understand the, um, the, the, the mandates behind it, we don't have the scriptures to back it, we don't have the conviction in our heart, how well do you think we're going to do when the test comes? We're going to just power right through that, right? Uh, probably not so much. And then, then there comes to the uh, to the whole doctrine of non-resistance and 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 the relatives of it. And um, this this is where I would if you if I drew a picture of an umbrella here behind me, and I won't take the time to do it, but I would call the umbrella the doctrine. And underneath that umbrella is all kinds of little issues that we um, relate to in certain ways because it falls under this umbrella of what we call the doctrine of non-resistance. Or maybe I could even broaden it to say separation. Sometimes those two somewhat go together. I'm going to name just a few of these. Um, we don't vote. Uh, there, there's a reason we don't and that falls underneath the, this umbrella. Um, just recently, very recently, an acquaintance of ours, a neighbor somewhat, text my wife and ask if she has ever considered campaigning for a certain candidate. In other words, she was, she was asking my wife if she and our children would campaign for what she called a God-fearing patriot in our, in our neighborhood that's running for, I believe, Congress. Well, it, it, no, we wouldn't do that, but, but, we have to explain why not, okay? And so um, I guess a couple things came to my mind there is maybe it's to our shame that this person didn't know that we didn't vote, perhaps, but we, we never really had that opportunity to talk about the subject. But anyway, she knows that now. Um, what do you do whenever you're around a, a crowd where the appropriate thing is to, to salute the flag? What, what do you do then? Do you know how you would relate to that? Like if 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 you were in a crowd and and um, everybody's jumping up and they're saluting the flag, what would you do? How what would be the appropriate thing to do? I, that happened to me one time about 20 years ago, and I'll maybe get into that a little later. I didn't know what to do. I had never been in such a situation, and I did not know what the appropriate thing was. I couldn't say the Pledge of Allegiance because I didn't know it. Okay, so that took care of that part of it. But what should I do? Do I stand? Do I sit? Do I, do I hold my, 
my, my uh, hand over my heart. I wasn't sure what I should do. Like I say, I couldn't say the pledge because I didn't know it, so that, that was fine. I did stand awkwardly, and um, afterwards I thought through that thing and asked some advice, and I think I'm much better prepared for a next time, if there is a next time. I would even say that in that particular situation, I learned I learned more about other issues too, and, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. This this whole doctrine is why we don't participate in jury service. Now, Brother Warren and and Jessica and I believe Danella have recently um, had a jury a summons, and I think if I'm right, Warren and Jessica will find out tomorrow at eleven o'clock whether they have to show up and and say their thing. And I know there's been quite a number of us here recently that have been uh, have been called on for this um, for this particular service. And there has been varying degrees of um, of recognition of the of the letter that we send back with the uh, response. And uh, here in Dodge County, they don't recognize that. Um, you, you have to show up in in court and and say your uh, say your thing. But do we know why? Do we know why we don't participate in jury service? Do we do we understand that? How about concealed carry permits? Now that was a dicey one, and it never ceases to amaze me when this subject comes up, especially at Bible school. You will get significant pushback on the the. Um, well, I'll just state my thing. I don't think Christians should have concealed carry permits. That's just where I'm at. Not everybody feels like me. Let's put it that way. And I'll tell you later why I feel that way. And if you choose not to feel that way, um, you're going to have to argue pretty long to convince me of it, okay? So um, we'll leave that one the way it is. <clears throat> why aren't you a part of a labor union? Um, you realize that, that that plays into non-resistance and its relatives. Why don't you press charges whenever your house is burnt down and you found out you find out who burned it down? Somebody burnt it down. What about using the force of law whenever you have a tenant in your tenant house and you want him to move and he doesn't want to move? What happens then? Um, these are dicey things. We should think very seriously, or we should anyway, about consistent lives in all areas and how this doctrine has many tentacles, many areas that it touches. And I would like to uh, to consider that a bit this morning. I would also say, we're still on reasons here that I think we should look at this at times. There are many, and the key word here is many, there are many articulate voices out there saying quite the opposite, quite the opposite. The voices in nominal Christianity is rife with what I would consider false doctrine in this area. And we are exposed to this many, many ways. And they're very convincing. And if we're not well grounded in this, we will be quickly, quickly uh, pulled away from this doctrine and convinced otherwise. I'm, I'm 
quite convinced of that. And I guess there's always a question in my mind, uh, kind of uh, repeating myself, are we as individuals adequately prepared should a crisis of significant magnitude test us in this area? Are we? Um, I have some statistics that I'm going to um, um, relate to you a little bit later that would suggest that rarely is the church well prepared. Rarely. Um, we, we, it seems like we stumble on this one um, too many times. History shamelessly documents, I would say, that the test of non-resistance and defenseless love is passed only by people who have truly changed hearts and daily live it and understand it well. You know, I, I just reflected here. Uh, I do not believe in our audience this morning um, we would have anybody that has ever been... Um, has ever been tested um, as far as uh, the draft issue goes. You know, for the, for a large part of the 20th century, that was a deal, and uh, there was various um, various times that happened: the different world wars, the Korea War, the Vietnam War, and uh, the draft. Um, the draft treated Christians differently through those times, but none of us here has ever experienced that. None of us. And uh, I, I will say that even I, as um, you know, as a pastor here, I, I was a bit smitten. I'm like, you know, I have never really been tested significantly on this doctrine. I mean, you know, you could say that, um, you know, here and there, but I'm talking crisis of significant magnitude. I would have to say that I don't feel like I have even been tested. And so you could say that there's a possibility that our corporate muscles could be a little bit weak, perhaps. Um, I hope not, but um, but maybe. I just remember when I was um, 18 or so, something along those lines. I had a um, I had a um, what was it a tendon or something in my in my knee that that ripped, and so this thing needed replaced and or patched, and so. We got that done, and for a time, I had to have my my uh, leg in a, I don't know, it wasn't a cast really, but it was rendered immobile, all right? And I think that only was for like, oh, I don't even remember, but maybe three weeks, I would say. So in, for three weeks, I didn't use my leg to speak of. And after that very short period of time, I couldn't bend my knee, and those muscles had deteriorated to a to an unbelievable level. I mean, my, my one leg was significantly, noticeably smaller than the other just because I hadn't walked on it for, I want to say, three weeks, something like that. So the point is, when we don't use a muscle, um, whether that be in our leg, our arm, or a doctrinal muscle, if you will, uh, it tends to get weak pretty fast, I would say. Okay, so turn with me to Matthew 5. I would just like to look... Um, at some of the very fundamental basics of why we as a church have um, have embraced this, what we call the doctrine of non-resistance. And I would like to say this here, too, in, in the outstart. This, this doctrine 
has biblical and historical precedence, and I'm going to point out both of those as we go along here this morning, but you can't go to a verse that says, thou shalt not be a soldier in the military. There's none like that. And so we arrive at this point more by using our sound minds, and, and that's another that's another whole subject, and I debated whether I should preach a, a sermon on using sound, our sound minds before I, I preached this one, but I, I, I did it the opposite. So uh, that, we'll save that one for later. But it's the whole thing of honestly looking at Scripture and saying, this is what it says and this is what we'll do. Now, I'm, I'm interested, I'm interested to hear the other side because that helps me understand that point of view. And, and I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're, they're attempting to use their sound minds too, okay? But I want to say that I think this, this doctrine is a little bit sounder than theirs. Is that, is that being too, um, um, well, I, I don't, I don't mean to be, um, I don't mean to be prideful or anything like that. But my point is, I don't think it's being honest with Scripture to ignore the absolutely undisputable and then take some, some, some random Scriptures, some obscure Scriptures, and say, well, yeah, what about that? Well, we'll maybe look at a few of those as we go along. But anyway, for now, let's just read Matthew 5, and we're going to read uh, verses 38 to the end of the chapter. Very familiar verses. Ye have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same. And if you salute your brother only, what do you more than others? Do not even the public publicans so. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now I want to I want to just point out one thing in this in this particular reading. Notice in verse thirty nine it says, "Resist not evil." All right, it's the evil that we should not resist. Now I have I have heard argument given that when a, a, a person will justify his actions in, in killing another person, let's just say. I just heard this recently. And the, the excuse or the reason given in this person's mind, he said, I was not, I was not, I did not kill a person. He said, I stopped evil. But here it says, resist not evil. That's what it says. Resist not evil. Now, I've also heard it argued that this particular passage is just talking about me and someone else. So if one comes up and bops me, 
I'm not supposed to bop him back. But Gary can bop him because he bopped me. See? But then if he turns around and he goes after Gary, Gary's got to quit and i got to start. See? See, how, see where that goes? The argument is we're not supposed to defend ourselves, but we can defend others. But when you take that to its most primary level, it begins not to make sense because how, how does that all work? And at the end of the day, it, it rarely does work the way it is argued to work. John 18.36, another very, very familiar uh, scripture that I'm going to quote here. Jesus answered and said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from hence. Again, very, very um, simple words, very well understood. And I think at this point, I'm going to take the time, if you would, turn with me to Luke 22. And this is, this is a proof text passage that I want to look at just really briefly because there has been literally books written on this particular passage that would that says no Jesus was okay with the use of the sword so let's just read here in um, verse 35 of Luke 22 and he or Jesus said unto them when i sent you without purse and scrip and shoes lacked ye anything and they said nothing then said he unto them but now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his scrip, and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that this is written, that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me, and he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And they, or the disciples, said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said, it is, and he said unto them, It is enough. Uh, what do you make of that? Jesus told them to sell their cloak and buy to buy buy a sword. Well, I want you to notice something. So when he said that there in verse thirty-six, the reason he gave for saying that is, is he says, "For I say unto you, the reason I just said to sell your garment and buy a sword." is that this that is written must be accomplished in me that I was reckoned with the transgressors and for the things concerning me have an end. Now, I'm not going to profess to exactly know what all Jesus is referring to there, but the reason he gives for the selling of the garment and buying a sword has something to do with the fulfillment of Scripture. Okay? But now let's go to verse 49. So Peter now has a sword. And it says, when they which were with him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? So they had the two swords, and, um, and they asked the question, shall we use this sword to smite? And it says, one of them, and we know this man was Peter, smote the high priest's ear and cut it off. And we know that, that Jesus rebuked him, touched the, heel, the ear, and healed it. Now, it isn't recorded here, but if you would go back to Matthew 26, um, there's another part of this conversation that is um, that is in Matthew that isn't here in Luke. But in verse uh, verse 52 of, of Matthew 26, then Jesus said unto him, the person that smote off the um, the ear, which is Peter, 
Put up again thy sword into its place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. And then he goes on to say, don't you think that uh, my father could deliver me with 12 legions of angels? So when you put that all together, it certainly does not fit the, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of the apostles, or even the, 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 the things that transpire here in this very event, that these obscure verses here in, in Luke 22, 36, or 35 through 37, is somehow Jesus saying, or giving his followers this right to bear the sword. Uh, it, it just doesn't fit. Again, I'm not going to say that I understand completely what Jesus was trying to say there. But I will say verse 37 is our key. It has something to do with the, uh, with the um, fulfillment of prophecy. And I'm just going to leave that there. <clears throat> if you want some other verses you can look at sometime, uh, look up 1 Peter 2. Uh, read them quickly. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Peter is calling us to this, uh, to suffer like Christ. And remember, Peter is the one that had the sword out there and was hacking away at the ears. And so uh, Peter had learned something between... Um, between this event here in, in um, the Gospels and when he wrote this letter. And probably um, probably one of the um, better-known passages is also is in Romans 12, and I'll just quickly read that um, because I think it's probably worth our, our time. Romans 12, verse 17. Recompense to no one evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as life, then you live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, it goes into chapter 13 right after this. And chapter 13 is often a go-to passage when people want to, um, you know, want to defend the whole idea of participation in government, participation in the military, etc. But do you suppose there's, uh, there's a reason that this chunk of verses, verses 17 to 21 of chapter 12, precede chapter 13? I personally think there is. I think... Chapter 12 is the, the, uh, what would you call it? It's, it's the, it's the playbook for the Christian, right? It's how we as Christians are supposed to conduct ourselves in this world. And it tells us there how we're supposed to do this whenever we're, um, uh, when evil comes to us. We're not supposed to repay evil for evil. However, in verse, in chapter 13, it says, along with this, now, you be subject to the powers out there. You know, there is government out here that does take care of those kinds of things, and your job is to, as much as you can, you should be subject to these higher powers because they're there for a reason, and God has placed them there to do some things. It's not call, it, An honest reading of chapter 13 is not calling us to participate in it. It's just saying, it is there. You submit yourselves to it. All right. Let's move on now to... Um, 
some historical precedent, and I'm just going to briefly uh, go over this. There's no indication that prior to the year 300 that Christians ever took arms to defend themselves or the Christian cause, okay? Um, now, that changed around the, the year 300 whenever Constantine took uh, over the, the throne there and, and he attempted to turn the, um, the uh, Roman Empire into a Christian uh, empire, and, and, and you know that, and I'm not going to uh, belabor that. But that's when things changed, and things began to get very, very confusing on this particular issue. But prior to that, this, what we would call the doctrine of non-resistance, was very much grounded and practiced in the Christian church. Now, the, it is true that prior to the year 180, there is some indication that there were soldiers in the Roman army that were Christians. There, there is some indication of that. So people point to that and say, well, what of that? And I'm no authority on this. But one historian has pointed out that during that particular period of time, um, it was a very peaceful time in Rome. And you could spend your entire life as a soldier in the Roman army and never lift a sword. You'd maybe build roads and, and whatever. And also to, uh, to get in, to get out of the Roman army was not an easy thing. So the, the, the thought goes like this. Perhaps in that era, the, the church gave a waiver to some of these soldiers that they could remain in the army, build their roads, whatever they did, and um, as long as they were not asked to, um, you know, go out and wage war, they could do that. Seems like a weak argument. I'm not ready to, um, I don't know what to do with that. That's just what I read. Um, but let's, let's just say this. We don't have any, any indication that the church condoned it or they encouraged it. And we do know that the, the, the precedent or the stance of the church during that time was if you were a Christian, you were not to join the military. It was very much, it was very much talked about and talked against. So there was an anomaly there, but, um, we'll leave that the way it is. There was also, uh, groups through the, um, through the early church ages up to the 1500s when the Anabaptists uh, came on the scene that, um, that were these um, sub subgroups, these the true church, and if one would look carefully, that one of the ones that rises to the top is the Waldensians, and they held a very nonviolent, defenseless position through the Middle Ages for um, a couple of hundred years, and um, I better not say that. I think it was a couple of hundred years. It was quite a long time. Let's put it that way. And so they. Um, they practice it much like uh, much like we would understand it, and of course, then the uh, Anabaptists came on the scene in 1525, and from its very inception, it is always held to the doctrine of the separation of church and state, including radical non-resistance. And many gave their lives to rather than to defend themselves. Now, unfortunately, during that sorting out of the early Anabaptist days, there were um, Anabaptists, Jan Matthies and um, and the Munsterite debacle is one that always comes to mind, where they did, they, they used the sword. And guess what? They're not around today. They're not here. The ones that um, that insisted on 
using the sword, uh, perished with the sword, just exactly like Jesus said would happen. However, in the meantime, it gave true non-resistance Christians a very black eye, and um, and it uh, it did not do them any favor. Which, if you want a little bunny trail here, think about that. Um, because of a few people, a few misbehaving people, the Anabaptists for years could not shake that off of their back. People insisted that if we gave these Anabaptists too much rope, they'd do exactly what Jan Matthews and the Munsterites did. And it wasn't true. And you know what, folks? You and I can do the exact same thing. We misbehave. We don't treat the, the, the cause of Christ like it should be. And you give your brother and sister a very black eye. Think about that. Well, during the, the passage of time, after the year 300, theologians came and went that propagated and deceived millions in another direction. And probably um, the man Augustine rises to the top as a, uh, as a man that did probably some of the most damage to some of these doctrines. Unfortunately, he was embraced by all of the reformers, and to this day, those ideas that Augustine promoted are still around and still defended and still embraced by, by people to, to this very day. Uh, the one, I don't know if you ever heard of this, but uh, there's a thing called the just war theory. And I'm going to read to you. This is basically a summary of what the just war theory says. And this was, uh, this was put in place by uh, Augustine. So he, he, he goes like this. A person, a, a Christian can uh, engage in warfare if he loves in his heart the man that he is killing. Number two, if he only engages in war as a last resort after all other options have failed. Number three, if the war is only being fought to redress actual rights violated. Or the war must be waged under the authority of a ruler. The war must have a reasonable chance of being won. The soldier must do his best to distinguish between soldiers and civilians. And the killing must be in proportion to the end sought. And lastly, the good that is sought by the war, violence, must outweigh the evil of the war. Okay? So he said if, you, if, if it passes all those tests, it's okay to engage in warfare, was, was Augustine's um, thoughts on this. Well, number one, you can't find a Bible verse to substantiate any of that. That, that was his conjecture, and as reasonable as it sounds, you cannot back any of that up by, by the Bible. The other, the other question that, that insists an answer is, who decides this stuff? Like, who decides this? If, if, if a person in the military looks at the thing and says, there is, there's no way. There's no way that we even have a, a, a chance of winning this war. Does he just get to, to opt out? Because, you know, after all, Augustine says this, and this is the way I see it. Well, here, here's the last sort of encapsulating, um, overriding factor in this whole just war theory. If a Christian, for any of these reasons, Augustine says, or maybe this was Luther added this, I'm not sure, I don't want to assign it to the wrong person. But if a Christian decides that the war is unjust, for any of these above reasons, he still may serve without guilt because the ruler is his sovereign and he is just obeying his ruler. So at the end of the day, it just null and voids everything. Well, 
To repeat myself, the Bible gives no such instructions. Here in America, the experiment in democracy, which has been very kind to us generally, has taught and continues to teach us how difficult it is to live a separated, as a separated people in this benevolent society, or what has been a very benevolent society up to this point. And because of this, many have succumbed to worldly politics as a way to advance Christian ideals. And if you want a prime example of that, you have to look no further than last week, whenever Roe v. Wade was overturned. The, the rejoicing and the upbeatness of some of my friends that are Christians, or they at least uh, profess that, and, and I'm not here to judge one way or the other on that, was unbelievable. And I mean, I mean, it really put a, a, a real jolt in their steps. But, but the thing that I find so fascinating about this is, I, I personally don't believe for one minute that there will be much of re, a reduction in actual abortions taking place. Because what's going to end up happening, and, and it's already being well advertised, is, is this state that we live in is saying, well, if you live in North or South Dakota or Iowa, you're more than welcome to come to this state and get your abortion done. And we will see to it. And there's companies that are, that are actually um, uh, saying at this point they will actually aid people that are seeking abortion to you know, take care of their travel expense and such to, to, get, to get it done. So my point is, has anything really been uh, been accomplished. You know, I haven't heard of anybody that is a pro-abortionist that when the Supreme Court overturned that thing there last week that said, wow, you know what? I, I better stop and reconsider. Wow, you know what? Maybe those justices know something that I don't, and I really need to reconsider my position. Do you think there was one person in the entire United States that, that was pro-abortion that actually had those thoughts? Now, I don't know for sure, but I rather doubt it. Now, here's what could happen, though, is that Lynn could talk to his neighbor that's a pro-abortion person. I don't know if he has one or not, but he could. And, uh, and he, could, he could take him to the Bible, and he could reason with him like Paul reasoned with Felix, and he could perhaps bring that man to Christ, and he could change his mind on abortion. And now, now we accomplish something. You know what I'm saying? These things are hard issues. They have nothing to do with how the Supreme Court rules on a thing. But but we, not we, I hope not we, many people have succumbed to this idea that we must fight for good with politics. And folks, it never has worked, and it never, ever will. It just won't. We can, we, we can look at history. Um, Colonial America, um, the... The the uh, Mennonites in Pennsylvania wanted so bad for the Quakers to stay in power, and they voted for the Quakers, and, and they did their dead best to keep the Quakers there where they wanted them. Did it work? Are the Quakers still in power in in, uh, in Pennsylvania? No, they're not. And there's, that's a much bigger story. But uh, during the 19th and, and uh, early 20th century, there's ample record of um, of the people of our faith that took part in petty politics and civil activities and uh, voted and served on school boards and township and county um, uh, places and, and even participated in jury um, and so on. I'm just asking you, is, is our world a better place because of that? Did that actually accomplish anything? As a Mennonite church, 
uh, more clearly understood the concept of the separation of church and state in the early 20th century due to spiritual awakenings and, and uh, war experiences. Um, in our day, a much clearer line has been drawn. And I looked in vain for uh, this. I know in a book I have at home, there's a story of a Mennonite minister that after after World War One and the um, and the happenings during that war, he said something like this, and it's not an actual quote, but it's something like this. He says, "This war has taught me that there must be a separation between us and society." And and that's not exact an exact quote, but I I well remember reading that in in one of the books that I I have there at home. Well, we could spend. Uh, a, a bit of time on the common refutations of this position. I've, I've hit a few of them, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to belabor that any further because I don't have time. I would like to hit the um, some of non what I've termed non-resistance cousins. Okay, so because of this doctrine, um, we don't serve in non-combatant service in military because we believe that that's still part of the war machinery. All right. So we want alternative service, not non-combatant service. In other words, non-combatant means I'm not actually pulling the trigger on the gun, but perhaps I'm making the gas masks or uh, loading munitions. Um, that would be non-combatant, or maybe even the medical corps. It's why we don't uh, serve in the jury. And um, I'm going to just just talk about this a little bit because this is something that's you know looking some of us right in the eye right now. The reason we don't serve in a jury is because it is an exercise at the end of the day to bring justice to lawmakers or to lawbreakers. And it gives the defendant an opportunity to be heard by a group of peers rather than a monarch. Okay, so that's the that's the basis for a jury. And again, the objective is to bring justice of the law upon the individual who has violated the law. We as people of God's kingdom are asked to show forgiveness. We are instructed to show forgiveness. We are told to take joyfully the spoiling of our goods. A juror also is not asked to take into consideration the penitence of the heart of the individual. Let's say that the person that did whatever he did is truly penitent. What did Jesus tell the adult, the woman caught in adultery? He said, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. He knew that person's heart. See, we don't know the hearts of people. We, we, can't, we can't possibly know that in any way. And also, in cases of capital punishment, there's no way that we as Christ followers can in good conscience condemn someone to die. We can't do that. Uh, as we clearly read in Romans 12, G, uh, God says that vengeance is his and he will repay. I would also point out that Jesus took no interest in settling score between two parties in Luke 12 when a man came to him and said, look, my brother won't divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said, it almost seems a little bit rude, he said, but man, who made me a judge or divider over you? Like, in other words, I, I got other things to do, but being a judge over you is not one of them. Another, another passage I would quickly point to is Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, where he instructs the Corinthian church to take care for the purity of the church, but to leave the affairs of society to the people of society. And it reads like this in verses 12 and 13. For what have I to do to judge them that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? 
But them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So he's saying, you leave the things of the outside to the people of the outside. Two other references I would quickly just point to is in uh, Philippians 3.20. It talks about how our conversation is in heaven. And in 2 Corinthians 5.20, it talks about how we are ambassadors on this earth. I'm not going to uh, to talk about much more than, than that. However, I will just say this. Back to my experience when I was asked to, or I was expected, to pledge allegiance to the flag. What had happened in that particular that particular time is there was a dairy, a big dairy. Those of you in the neighborhood and, and were around that time remember, Ripley Dairy wanted to go in right across the road from us. It was a 3,000 cow dairy. And um, many of the many of the um, of the neighborhood was just up in arms about this, and it became a very divisive issue in the neighborhood. And so a committee was formed to try to, um, the way I understood it, it was to try to bring some understanding and peace to the situation. And I was asked to serve on this committee, and I thought, well, you know, maybe I could do this, you know, because. Um, after all, I, I would like to see peace restored too, because there was people that I got along with on both sides who were on very opposite sides. To make a very long story short, at the first meeting, shortly after the Pledge of Allegiance things went on, well, I immediately felt extremely uncomfortable. It became clear to me that this was not about compromise. This was not about finding a peaceful solution. This was all about propagating our agenda to stop this dairy. I mean, after the first meeting, I knew that I had no place on this board, on this, on, and I and I promptly resigned. I'm like, we're not looking for peace here. We're looking, we're looking to propagate our agenda by any means possible to the point of suing and force of law and all of that stuff. Well, I have some more here, but I, my time is running away, and I want to uh, hit my third point yet, and I called this non-resistance twin. About 20 years ago, I was uh, listening. Actually, it was about 20 years ago at the Midwest meetings, summer meetings. The entire um, theme of the of the summer was on this subject of non-resistance. And I should have looked. It might still be in those in the uh, cupboard there in the back. I was going to look, and I failed to do that. But Homer Miller had a um, had a topic there, and his topic was on the. If I remember right, at least it came in into this whole thing, is that there has never been a church that has maintained the doctrine of non-resistance without also maintaining a very thorough understanding of non-conformity and separation in many other areas of life. And he said these are twin doctrines. That's what he called them. They rise and they fall together. And the, the, the appeal he was making is that his fear was that he saw the, the doctrine of nonconformity being eroded in his mind to a point where he was fearful that the other doctrine would fall with it. I'm going to read to you a little bit of story time here. I'm going to read to you out of this book. It's a big fat book called Building on the Gospel Foundation, and it's a, it's a history book of the uh, Mennonites of Franklin County, Pennsylvania, and Washington County, Maryland. Some of you would find it extremely boring. I find it extremely interesting. But 
They designate quite a chunk here to World War I and how the Mennonites there in Franklin and Washington counties related to this test, they call it. And there's one man there in Washington County, Maryland. His name is Isaac Baer. And I asked my dad if he knew this man, and he said he remembers him being referred to as a young boy. He said he had moved after he, I don't know what point, but sometime after he came out of this deal here with being drafted, he moved to Washington, D.C., and he spent a good chunk of his life ministering to the Jews in Washington, D.C. But he said he was always spoken of with very high respect by the Mennonites there in my part of the world. Anyway, this man was drafted into the Army, and he was expected to show up at Camp Meade there in Maryland. And I'm just going to read a few excerpts here and then make a few comments afterwards. So here we find Isaac Baer at Camp Meade, and it says the testing began immediately. On the morning of September 28th, Colonel Sweeney called them separately into his office for questioning. As so often became the case in later interviews with military personnel, the colonel tried to appeal to their sense of right and wrong. He asked Isaac, do you realize that two other men must be conscripted from your county to replace you if you decline? It was Isaac and another friend here. Isaac replied, how can I change that and yet be true to my conscience? The colonel tried another approach. Do you realize, he asked, that this war is being fought in defense of Christianity as well as democracy? He had not counted on the fact that Bear had a concept of Christianity different from his. Bear responded, Christianity does not call for physical weapons to defend it, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. After this, the colonel broke off his questioning, admitting that the two men were well within their rights. He told them that they would be segregated until the president defined noncombatant service. The two men had no sooner walked out of Sweeney's office until they were confronted by a major on horseback. Seeing their plain clothes, he roared at them, Who are you? Isaac answered, We are known as Mennonites. Mennonites, who are they, thundered back the officer. They are a people who believe it is better to receive injury than to inflict it. Young man, I want you to know, the officer said, no one will escape service in this war. Isaac replied, lest it be misunderstood for mere stubbornness, I will not say bluntly I won't fight while that is what I mean, but rather I cannot conscientiously train to kill my fellow men. I am here against my will. I am in your hands and at your mercy. Deflated by the meek response, the major completely changed his tone. No, young man, you are not in our hands at all. Instead, you are in the hands of President Wilson and Secretary of War Baker, and your case will be decided by them. But I think that anyone taking a stand in your spirit should not realize difficulty. I'm just going to read something else here. He wrote a, a letter home to his sister when he was there in the camp. And I'm just going to read an excerpt from that. He says, Last evening the captain had us all downstairs to the mess hall and tried to get us to accept some service. There are a few who accepted hospital service, among them Russell Hicks, a dunkard from the Broadfording District. It was a fright how some of them stated their position. I was afraid these officers would inform Secretary Baker or Wilson that we have no grounds for our views. So I asked to have a talk with him, privately to which he consented. He then called 
on me the same evening. Marcus Lederich went with me and I had a fine talk with him. I told him, so many talk about their conscience and I say, what does my conscience or any other man's conscience amount to if there's not a stronger power governing it? I referred to Paul having a conscience to persecute Christians, but after he was converted, he conscientiously could not do as before. I said, the Bible is that stronger power that governs our conscience. I asked him if he would let me have a Bible, and he said that I could. He said, I think the, the government of, I said, I think the government of this country allows that, and he said that it does. I proceeded to tell him of the two kingdoms. I said, the scripture acknowledges governments and gives us instruction what attitude to take towards such. Then that the kingdom, that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. I pointed to him the character of both kingdoms, the works of each. I stated what the work of the flesh is and the work of the spirit is stated in Galatians. I told him that if I thought that the scriptures sanctioned war, I would want to be in a place where I could do the most good for the country. It would not be afraid of anything. But I told him the Bible forbids war. I told him the Bible calls for a separation and a dying to self, that men cannot enter heaven without first repenting of his sin, becoming converted, and therefore receiving the divine nature of Christ. And after having undergone this chain, he no longer holds his citizenship here on earth, but he has his affection set on things above. In the conversation with Captain White, he told me the Mennonites are the best boys they have. They, there are so many other good boys here, but sad to say the Dunkards are worldly. Some have att- attended picture shows, go to fairs, some have sought the company of questionable morals, played cards, etc., etc. They go, they got in because of the fundamentals of their faith, and one of them is non-resistance. Sad to say, sad it is to know that separation from the world is gone. Surely they will never return to the old paths. Did you ever see a church that did? You know they mingle with politics, too, how they are dropping the dress question, the prayer covering, etc., etc. Surely we cannot afford to compromise. Now, this is all the letter that he wrote to his sister. And I'm going to read uh, uh, just a few more things here. It says, there might have been some sectarian pride in Bear's comments. However, as historian Gerloff Homan has observed about Mennonite CEOs, those coming from the more nonconformist groups, like Bear's, held to their non-resistant convictions more consistently. And then I'm going to read one more little excerpt here. On January 10 of 1918, the COs were ordered to the YMCA building for what they thought was another round of pressure tactics. Instead, they discovered they were being brought to see a moving picture show. When Isaac Baer realized what was up, he went to the captain and asked to be excused. White refused permission, so he took a seat. When the film started, he and his fellow Mennonites bowed their heads, shut their eyes, and started praying. However, one African-American CEO, sitting right beside Isaac, stood up and began speaking about Christ in tears. The soldiers led him out of the room. Later that evening, White and Bear were called into the office and asked why the Mennonites did not like the movie. Bear said, we do not frequent those places at all, and I was never at one in my life. Surprised, the captain wondered why. Bear responded, we think they are wrong. We draw the line between the church and the world, and these things belong to the world. There's much more I could read there, but I simply read that to say this. If you noticed, there were some things in this man's life that stacked. He was recognized as a Christian by the way he dressed. He was recognized as a Christian because he didn't watch the movies. But whenever he was questioned for his faith, 
It wasn't about his dress or not watching movies. It was about a defined power and a conscience that would not allow him to do these things. He had the right motivation. Now, I don't know how we may be tested in the in the future. Something tells me that we may not have life as easy in the future as we've had it in the last 50 years. And I would be I, I would be a fool to sit here and even guess. But my point is, I don't care how we're tested. Unless we have the inner dwelling of Christ and a changed heart, we are going to be good for nothing when the time comes. This man did. I didn't read all the story, but there was many people that succumbed. He didn't. And I think there was one difference. They all had the plain clothes too. But there was something in the heart that that was missing. And that's important. And I want each one of us to search our hearts. Why do we do the things we do? Are we doing it just because the church asks us to? Or because it's the right thing to do? Or are we doing it because we have a heart that has been changed and we understand that the only way we'll stand any test is to have that changed heart.